Our sermon text this morning is from the prophet Joel, beginning in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. I invite you to turn there with me now. And one of the many benefits and opportunities that I'm so thankful for in this internship is the opportunity to preach through a variety of different genres of scripture. It was a great experience for me and I'm thankful for it. And so as I was looking forward to this Sunday, I knew that I wanted to uh, spend some time in one of the prophets. I didn't realize though just how helpful this passage was going to be in my life, how Christ-exalting it really is. We know all scripture is Christ-exalting because it is all about Christ. But even in certain texts, you don't understand the fullness of how Jesus shows up there and he showed up there in a big way this week for me. And so it's my prayer, it's been my prayer this week and my hope for this morning that as you leave here this morning, Jesus would be a little bit bigger in your eyes as he's become in mine. And if that happens, then I've done my job this morning. Well, let me read our text for us. We'll just jump right into it. Um, There are no sharp turns, no detours, no twists. We're just going to walk right through the text this morning, and we laid it out in the bulletin like this. It says, Christ's promises to his church, abundance, justice, and peace. Christ is promising us three things in this text for his church this morning. So that's where we're going. Let me read the text for us, and then we'll pray for God's blessing. Joel 3, beginning in verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord. You dwell on Zion, on your throne. And you judge the nations, you judge the earth, you judge each and every one of us. And Lord, we would tremble, we would uh, pass away under the weight of your wrath if it weren't for your son, Jesus, who died on our behalf, bore our sins on the cross, bearing them on his body on the tree, taking away the, the guilt and the stain of sin and your wrath from us. And instead, gave us his righteousness, made us sons and daughters of you, so that we have the privilege and the honor to call upon you as our Father. Lord, be with us now. Spirit, bless us through the hearing and the uh, reading of your word, and would it be all to your glory and praise. Amen. So through his prophet Joel, we see that Christ is, in fact, he is promising his church abundance justice, and peace. So let's look at those three in order. We'll start in verse 18, and we'll see that Christ promises his church abundance. 
And we see right away that this is a new section that the prophet Joel is entering into. We see that from the opening line where he says, and in that day, which makes us think, well, what day exactly? What day are we talking about? That's always a good question to ask when reading scripture. And we've started all the way at the end of the book today, so we've skipped a lot of the context that we would have normally have received. But if we were to go back and read through the book in its entirety, we would see that this theme, this day, shows up quite a bit. And this day is no other than the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. It's a major theme throughout the book of Joel. Even in just this short book of only three chapters, Joel mentions this day eight times. And not only in Joel do we find this day show up, but it shows up throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament. It is a prominent day. It's an important day. But that doesn't still quite answer our question of what kind of day is it? What makes this day so important? So in order to give us a little bit more context, look with me here a couple pages earlier in the book of Joel, and we'll start in chapter 1, verse 15, the first time that this day shows up. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. And then beginning in chapter 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Chapter 2, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So what kind of emotions are we feeling after reading those verses? What images and pictures come to mind? does not seem to be a Disney movie happily ever after sort of ending. No, this is the mighty and terrible day of the Lord where he will judge the earth. The words we read are darkness, gloom. There will be shouts, there will be sirens, alarms going off. There will be destruction and fear. This is the picture that we're getting. And Joel is pronouncing this judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, upon the, the nation of Judah, because of their sins. And Joel, it's fascinating, he doesn't begin with uh, uh, recounts of their sins, but he just starts right away with judgment and leaves it to us to understand the context. And we do understand from the previous book of Hosea that Ju Jerusalem and Judah had apostatized. They had abandoned the Lord their God. God's own chosen people have gone after other gods and so now the Lord is visiting the judgment that is due upon them. And so we read that locusts have destroyed their land, made it uninhabitable. There's no longer any food or drink. 
All the rivers have run dry. The day of the Lord is upon them. Then something interesting happens. There's a twist in the story. There's a shifting in Joel's message. And it happens in the first verse of chapter 3 where we see this, this shift where he says, For behold, in those days and at that time, there's no longer judgment. But what does he say? When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Seemingly out of nowhere, where there was once judgment, there is now good news. Somehow in this day of the Lord, this day that once was a day of judgment, has become a day of restoration. Their fortunes will be restored. Jerusalem and Judah will once again be at peace. Well, how is that possible? And what does that restoration look like? Well, that brings us to our passage this morning, which is the culmination of the entire book of Joel. His entire message can be summarized in this short passage here at the end. And so we read in verse 18, and it says, In that day, in that day, that day of the Lord, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So Joel describes this abundance from the Lord using three stanzas. He says that there will be an abundance of wine and milk. He says that the rivers of Judah, every river throughout the whole country, will once again flow abundantly. And that the fountain of the Lord itself will pour forth such an abundance of water that it can reach even the farthest valley. And all of this abundance is designed to undo the judgment that God had previously brought upon them, to undo the curse of their sin. See, the mountains, Joel says, are are going to drip with sweet wine, also could be translated as new wine. It's going to be fresh wine that flows from the mountaintops. And so we see that whereas in Joel 1, the vines were dried up, the vineyards were destitute, the wine was cut off, now in Joel 3, not only will the vineyards be brought back, the mountains themselves will be dripping, flowing with this new and fresh and sweet wine. And we see that whereas in Joel 1, every herd and every pasture and every flock have been destroyed by these locusts, well now in Joel 3, even the hills themselves will be flowing with milk, the produce of the land. Whereas in Joel 1, the water brooks are dried up. Now in Joel 3, every stream bed, every river in the entire land of Judah will be flowing with water and there will be no lack. And if that wasn't enough, we read that the house of the Lord itself from Jerusalem will send forth such a fountain of water, such a torrent of water, so strong, so mighty, and so forceful that it is said it will even reach the valley of Shittim. Now that raises another question. What is that valley? Where did that come from? Well, other than being a fun word to say, it seems kind of odd to us that it would show up here. But see, the original hearers of this prophetic word 
they would have rejoiced at the sound of it. You see, this word is a transliteration into English of the Hebrew word for acacia wood or acacia trees. And so this land is named after this abundance of acacia wood. It is a dry, it's an arid land. And it's right on the edge of the land of Moab there in the desert. And it was here that we know the people of Israel lived for many years during their wandering in the desert before they were able to enter into the promised land. This land dwelled east of the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea, and you can read all about the history of that, beginning with the story in Numbers chapter 22, starting there all the way up to Joshua chapter 3, as Joshua crosses the Jordan River and enters the land. That whole span, that whole stretch of scripture, all takes place here in this valley, in this land, in this area of the desert. Generations existed here. And so the people of Israel would have known this land well. Their children and their children's children would have known the stories of this land. They would have heard the stories, even as the prophet Micah says, Micah 6, 5, where he says, my people remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. From here to Gilgal, that's the exact journey that Joshua took as it's recorded in Joshua chapter 3. This land was part of their national history. It was part of their identity. And they knew just how dry it was. They knew just how much their parents hungered and thirst for water in the desert. They knew the extent of that hot desert heat. And so why does Joel bring it to memory now? Even the fountain of the Lord can reach that desert. There is no place that is so dry and so destitute that the water from the Lord can't reach and can't bring new life. In all of these ways, the wine, the milk, water in the valley, the Lord is promising abundance to his people. Okay. I know you're saying Levi, ancient history is Interesting, geography's fun, but you said that these were Christ's promises to his church. Haven't seen Christ show up yet. So what's going on here? Well, I love reading. I enjoy researching and reading new commentaries and and seeing all the different ways that modern scholarship is trying to answer these questions and understand the text and dissect it. And, you know, where is this valley and how is it related to Uh, Jerusalem, how is it that water could flow all the way from Jerusalem miles across the desert through a river and reach this valley? How is that possible? When would Joel even be writing these words? In what context was he prophesying? Those are all helpful questions to be asking, but the truth is that we already know what this text is all about. And Matthew Henry, great commentator, he knew the answer 300 years ago. And if you turn to that page in his commentary, you can go up to our library, you can open up to that page at the top of this section, and he'll just have this at the top, Promises to the Church. That's what he titled this section. So I'm, I'm stealing from Matthew Henry a little bit, and I feel good about that, because he got it right. But what gave Matthew Henry the right to say that these promises for, were for the church? Aren't these promises given to 
the people of Judah. We know that he was right. We believe that he was right. We're confident that he was right because it's what Jesus himself knew to be right and to be true. We know that on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus was walking with these two men, as recorded in Luke's gospel, that Jesus was teaching to them, and it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that he, that is Jesus, was interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the prophets teach us about Jesus. Jesus is our abundance. His blood is our new wine. Shed for our sins that drips abundantly down the mountaintops. His spirit is poured out on his chosen people. He is the living water that can quench even the driest valley. John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, Jesus does not make any direct quotation to any Old Testament passage there in John's gospel, and so scholars debate exactly to what Jesus might be referring. And certainly, it could have been a lot of things in combination, but do you think Jesus might have had this fountain in the book of Joel that springs forth from the house of the Lord? Do you think he might have had that in mind? I think maybe. Some preachers, though, and it's fascinating, that, but they can preach this text in Joel without mentioning Jesus' name. I listened to one this week, and I do not mean to talk ill about anyone, but only to make the point that they will preach to you that this valley somehow represents the circumstances of your life and that you've been put in this valley and it's unfortunate but God has good blessings in store for you, and if you have enough faith, he will bring you out of that valley. That's what God's will for you is in this passage. And so I just want to be clear this morning that this is not your valley, that this is not the valley of despair, this is not the valley of needing a new car or being in credit card debt, This is not the valley of a dead-end job or whatever your current inconvenience might be. Christ has not sent forth the living water from his throne to give us material blessings in this life. That's not why he did it. No, he pours out his spirit. Christ poured out the living water out of his own heart that he might gather from every corner of the earth, from every valley and every hill, the farthest reaches of the earth, that he would gather sinners like you and me and raise them from dead death to life, that he would gather to himself more worshipers, that they might praise his name. All glory is to Christ. That's why he did this. But don't you see, even though we are giving glory to Christ, it's our abundance that we get in return. When we have Christ, we have everything. As Pastor Sparky talked about in Sunday school this morning, If you're in Christ, there is no lack. You have everything that you need. Man's chief end, like we 
love to quote. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we glorify God, we enjoy him. That's the mystery of this Christian life, but it's true. We have Christ in abundance. We have every good gift. We have every need provided for for those of us who are in Christ because we have him. Are you in Christ this morning? Question we always need to ask. Or are you still drawing from your own well, trying to draw water from yourself? Well, there is no lack for those who belong to Christ. For those in Christ, there is abundance. We see that promise clearly. But what does it say for those who are not in Christ? Well, that's the second promise that we receive here in our text is that Christ also promises his church justice. The fountain of the Lord can water the uttermost regions of the earth, yet we read that on that day, there are still two places that will remain unwatered, and in fact, they'll become a desolate wilderness, destitute and dry. Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. Now, throughout Old Testament history, the Israelites had many enemies. They had many foes. The Canaanites, the Moabites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Mosquito Bites. Classic Sunday school joke, just keeping you on your toes. But all of these lists of of enemies and foes to the nation of Israel, and even in Joel's context in that day, it was the Assyrians and the Babylonians who had exiled Israel, the nation of Israel, and then it exiled Judah some years later. And so it's curious then, why does Joel now, knowing the time and the context in which he is prophesying and proclaiming this prophecy to the people of Judah, why does he mention these two nations? Why Egypt and Edom? Certainly, they play a big role in the overall history of the church and of Israel. But to the original listener who was from Judah, who had just either been exiled or maybe they're already at this point returning from exile, but the atrocities that had happened at the hands of the Babylonians certainly would have been fresh in their mind. And so, so why does Joel not prophesy against Babylon? Wouldn't that have been more comforting to hear? Why Egypt and Edom? Well, it's because, as we've already seen, this passage isn't Joel's promises to the exiles. This passage is Christ's promises to his church. In prophetic material like this, it's important to distinguish the different ways in which prophecy is fulfilled. Not all prophecies have a historic fulfillment in the ancient nation of Israel, or in the modern nation of Israel, for that matter. And so it is here. In the physical sense, this prophecy has not been fulfilled. You can travel to that valley of acacia trees today, east of the Jordan River, and you'll find that it's still quite dry. You could also likewise travel to the Nile River and see that it is still giving fresh water to the people of Egypt to this day. It is not yet dried up. So what do we do with this passage then? Do we expect, do we wait for a future future fulfillment for these things to happen physically in our natural world? 
Or do we understand it in the proper spiritual context that Christ would have us do? It's kind of a leading question, but I suggest the second one. You see, Joel, through God's own spirit, he spoke against Egypt and Edom as recipients of divine judgment, not only because of their historical significance to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Judah, but even more so because of their spiritual significance to his church. Egypt, we know, was Israel's home for many generations, a home that had became a house of slavery to them and bondage until with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God brought them out of Egypt and brought them out of the land that they might worship him. And so it is with Edom being the nation that descends from Esau. And we know that Esau was the one rejected by God in favor of his younger brother Jacob, that Jacob would become God's people, his chosen nation. And in doing so, Esau and later the nation of Edom would become a foe to Israel throughout history. And so it is as if God was saying this to the people of Judah, saying, I brought you out of Egypt, and I promise you that you're never going back. I will never let you return to slavery in Egypt. And I will also, likewise, never cast you aside for your brother. I've chosen you, and you are mine for all times. And I'll prove it to you. These nations, Egypt, Edom, they're going to be wiped out completely. And so it is with us. We understand the spiritual significance of God's promise here for his church, that not by our strength, not by our might, but by God, with his outstretched arm, his mighty hand, he brought us out from the bondage of our sin, the Egypt of our sin and our slavery. And the mystery of the gospel that Paul expounds in Ephesians is that from all time, not based on any merit in us, just as he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, before they were even born, before they could do good or evil, God chose a people for himself. And he's not changing his mind. He chose Jacob. He chose his church. He chose us and knows us by name. Our names are written on the book of life. And there is no doubt in our minds that that will ever change. Because he's promising that he will provide justice for his church. It was so helpful, again, sitting and listening to the Sunday school talk on 1 Corinthians. And it's so fascinating to me, and it just really dawned on me today, that whereas in the Old Testament we see the day of the Lord show up so often, but then Paul takes that and takes some liberty and changes that, and he calls it what? The day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. But it's the same day but we know Jesus is Lord. And so it is right to know that while there will be restoration and hope for God's people, this is still a day of judgment. Those previous verses that we read are still in effect. And so it is good that we uh, serve the Lord with fear and trembling, that we think on the great and awesome day and ask the question, who can endure the day of the Lord? Because he will bring judgment and justice. But there is good news for those who are in Christ. And we see that also in verse 21, if you will go down there with me. Because 
Jesus, our Lord, will provide justice. He says, I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Their blood, the blood of his people, the blood of Judah and Jerusalem, have suffered at the hands of Egypt and Edom, who have suffered under the tyranny of sin, the slavery of sin. He is going to avenge their blood. But we know that this promise is true, and yet we live in this in-between time where Jesus is king, he is Lord, he is reigning, but he has not yet made all things new. And so we still, we do, even though we've been set free, we struggle with sin and temptation. And we hate that we do, and we wish that we wouldn't. And yet there's still part of us that that loves sin, that's enticed to it. And we understand as well in our world around us how easy is it to look around and understand and realize that things are not the way they should be. Things are not as good as they could be. Things are kind of bad. But we know that Jesus gives this promise to his church that even though he has not yet wiped away every tear, that one day he will in that day and that day of judgment and not only bring restoration but bring complete justice. And we know that this promise is certain. We know it's true because it's he who sits on Zion. Who is it? The Lord. And who is the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. That's what Paul understood. That's why he could say in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that day is this day that Joel's talking about because Jesus is the Lord. He's the one that dwells on Zion. That's the answer to the puzzle that Jesus gave to the Pharisees in Matthew 22 that we read earlier. How is it that the son of David can call him Lord? Well, it's because he is the Lord. He's the one. And he quotes from Psalm 110. And then in the next verse that he uh, doesn't quote in Matthew, we see it says that the Lord sends forth from Zion. So we see Zion show up again. He's sending forth a mighty scepter that Jesus would rule in the midst of his enemies, that he would rule from Zion. And in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs because the Lord has set his anointed on Mount Zion, on his holy hill. Jesus reigns from Zion and he promises his people, he promises his church that he will give justice. He will give victory over sin and death, the enemies of the church. He will make all things right. He will restore all things. And yes, this is a promise that we are looking forward to because Jesus has not yet returned. We are waiting for that day, longing for the Lord that he would not tarry much longer. But there are also present implications. There's present hope for us even in those words. As Matthew Henry reminds us, he he writes that the innocent blood of, of God's people is very precious to him, and not a drop of it shall be shed, but it shall be reckoned for. And so we see, do you see the, the love and the hope that God has for you? That he is not indifferent to your pain that you're going through right now. He's not indifferent to it, he's not waiting up there for no reason but in his perfect timing and he has seen every tear that you've cried he knows every ache of your heart he knows the suffering that you've gone through and he will avenge the blood of his people and I 
think of the Christians around the world whose blood has actually been shed, and I wonder and I hope and pray that I would be just as bold if it was my own blood that was being shed. But even from one extreme to the other, from the just the regular old kind of bad day all the way to the other extreme, God is with us through all of it, and he cares about all of it. And he loves you, and he will avenge the blood of his people. And we know he will, because he's already avenged the blood of the one that was truly innocent. Innocent blood, I will avenge, says the Lord. Well, he's already avenged the innocent blood that was shed by our Savior on the cross, the only man to live yet without sin, but took on our sin, bore it in his body on the tree, and his blood was shed. And the abundance of that blood covers and atones all of our sins, and he was vindicated. He was given victory by the Spirit, when the Spirit raised him on that third day. And so now he is, and he does sit on his throne in Zion, and he is ruling in the midst of his enemies, and he's promised his church that one day he will defeat sin and death forever. He'll trample them under his feet, and we will live with him forever. So that brings us to the last promise, that we will live with him forever. We see that Christ promises his church peace. He gives us peace. Look with me back at verse 20. It says, But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. This is the crown on top of all the rest. This is our good news, that there will always be worshipers in the city of God. And again, we're not talking about the earthly city of Jerusalem, but it's the one that is above. As the Apostle Paul told us and made clear to us in the letter to Galatians, to the Galatians, that this is a heavenly city, one that will be perpetually filled throughout history, from now uh, up to today and for into the future. We can be certain that as one generation of Christians pass away, they will always leave behind a new generation of Christians, that his goodness lasts forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I summarize this promise as peace. There's other words that we could have used. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, calls it perpetuity. So I like that word. I think it's fun. We could describe it that way. It's an eternal dwelling. It's a habitation that will go on forever. Rest is another good word as well. Because that's what we get when, when God is sovereign and when we are in him and when he has given us these promises and he's defeated sin and death and wickedness. That's all we have to do is rest in him and hope in him. We've only had a taste of that now. You know, it's like moving when you move and finally settle into a new place and everything's unpacked and put in their proper place and you can kind of just finally sit back and breathe out and relax. How much better is it going to be on that day when Christ returns? How unthinkable, how unimaginable that perfect rest, that perfect peace that we'll have forever to all generations. That's what Christ promises his church and that we'll get to enter into his rest. 
And so we see all three of those promises. And we already have a foretaste of that abundance. And we are looking ahead to when Jesus returns, but we have a foretaste of that now. We can taste of the abundance of Jesus and his blessings for us. In just a few moments, we are going to taste and see uh, for ourselves just how good the Lord is as we eat and drink from his table. And we'll know that just as surely as we feel and taste and smell and hold the bread and the wine, we know that Jesus is for us. We know that his own blood flowed for us on the cross like new wine down the mountaintops and took away the stain of our sin and made us white as snow. And we know that if God didn't spare the innocent blood of his own beloved son on our behalf, that there's nothing that he would ever withhold from us, let alone victory, justice, defeat of sin and death. He provided it for us. And because all that is true, because he's done that for us, because he promises that to us, to you, church, we can rest in him. We can have peace. That is what Christ promises to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings, almighty God, Prince of peace. Your blood has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, Lord. Your faithfulness assures us of our salvation, of our justification before you, of our right standing with you, that we are forever your children, that we are forever the sheep of your pasture. Lord, what better place is there to be than in your pasture? Lord, I pray that as we go about the rest of our day and our week and the months ahead, that we would know that you are our God, that you are for us, that we have peace, we have hope, we have assurance, we have all that to look forward to and we can live it out even today as we partake of your means of grace for us and we cherish them, Lord. We pray that we would always have eyes to see that looks to you, that we would fix our eyes on you always our hope, our assurance, our salvation. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. And we praise you for it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.